Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Commonwealth Games bid is going before GIC today. We're going to be joined by Terry Whitehead to get his read on what's going to be going on. Balfour House is being considered for lease to Cardis by the City of Hamilton. An op-ed says it's not a good idea. We'll explain why. And Ontario's new license plates have come under fire. The government is standing by the new plates, but say they're still going to consult with the manufacturers. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday we had Great Makechuck on. Of course, he is from the uh, Hamilton 100 organization. They're the ones that are trying to get the 2030 Commonwealth Games in Hamilton. And uh, Greg gave us a pretty extensive uh, outline as to what they're going to be talking about uh, when they go before city councillors later on this morning. And uh, he said this is actually the time where they're going to start to talk numbers and crunch numbers. And uh, there's obviously going to be some concern about what the city is going to have to do if they want to play ball with this. Uh, Greg was quite blunt about the fact that he says if the city says no, the council says no, uh, we're not putting any money toward this. He says the bid's dead, no matter what, no matter how much private sector money there is. So the ball obviously is going to be in the court of Hamilton City Council as they listen to this presentation. Uh, One of those councillors, Terry Whitehead, uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, give us some council perspective on this. Terry, thank you for the time. Good to have you on the show today. Uh, great to be with you, Bill, and your listeners. Terry, over the years uh, as a councillor and actually as a, in the administrative role at City Hall for many years, this is, I guess, what, about the third time you've been involved in a Commonwealth bid, and then, of course, the Pan Am bid. So uh, you, you, you're used to this process, aren't you? Oh, well, absolutely. I had an interesting perspective because I was working for the Minister of Heritage and Tourism, and, uh, in fact, that was my file for Hamilton. And uh, so I attended a number of meetings in Manchester and, uh, in fact, in uh, um was it Cape Town, uh, mm-hmm. South Africa? So yeah, I'm very close to the Commonwealth. Uh, All right, so you've got a, an outline, and you get more details on Chris today from the, the group as they make their presentation. Uh, you, they've been before you once already, but they said they're going to come back with some some hard and fast numbers on this now. Uh, you know, I I I don't want to presuppose that you're going to you know delve into these numbers because you're going to I I don't even quite know what they are ourselves at this point. But from what you know, what what's your read on on this whole proposal to bring the games back for 2030? Well, uh, from the high level, I believe that uh, that Hamilton has a great shot. This is uh, uh, we are uh, the, the the original location of the Commonwealth Games for the Empire Loyalist Games, and this would be uh, the anniversary of the common uh, Empire Loyalist Games right here in Hamilton, where it all began. So uh, that's the high level. The low level level is ensuring that. Uh, uh, the taxpayers aren't on a hook of things that we don't need. Making sure that the, the uh, um, strategic uh, legacy pieces to fall out of this proposal. Now, as Greg Maycheck explained it, and this is how I read it, what he was telling us yesterday anyway, uh, the amount of money that they may be seeking from the city here is about equal to the capital, the project of the capital cost that would be involved that you were going to be doing anyway over the next 15, 20 years. In other words, to build some of these uh, these facilities or to do upgrades and things of this nature. Uh, I guess what they're asking you to do, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, here, is uh, instead of using that money, put it into the pot here with us and we'll leverage the federal and provincial money. We can get everything done for everybody. Is, is that how you read this? Absolutely. So this is about like it being strategic uh, and tactical to align uh, uh, some of the uh, things identified in the Commonwealth bid uh, with things that are already on the capital budget for the city of Hamilton. And therefore, we leverage more money uh, through this uh, process at the same time 
uh, we uh, move vastly ahead some of these projects that probably wouldn't have happened in a timely fashion anyway. I guess the latest example of that, of course, is Tim Hortons Field, the stadium for the the Pan Am Games. And I, I don't want to get into the debate about location and everything else, but the fact is, is that we were able to leverage federal and provincial money uh, for that project uh, and then not put the cost on Hamilton taxpayers. Uh, I guess you're looking for that same sort of scenario here, are you? Yeah, it's, it's about leveraging as much money uh, on projects that we've already identified as being a need. Uh, and, and, of course, Hamilton is really need-based in the context of our our, our forward strategy. So if the Commonwealth bid and then some of the projects they align uh, with uh, capital projects we've already identified, then there's a, there's a great marriage there. So how do you see this rolling out today? I mean, I, I know you haven't had a chance to talk to all your colleagues. You've had some personal business I know you've been attending to over yeah, the last little while. I got back last night. So, but, but I know you've got a pretty good read on what's happening here. Uh, and you did, uh, of course, hear the initial presentation this group put together. Yeah. Uh, do they get the thumbs up today? Is council going to move forward on this? It's not yet ready to make a commitment, as, as I understand it, but at least uh, there's a letter of intent, I guess, that say, yeah, we're on board with this. Yeah, so I think there's a critical path that's been laid out. Uh, there's some councillors that asked some very, very good questions for staff uh, uh, as part of their direction in regards to the, the conversations and the negotiations with the Commonwealth Committee. And uh, those, those uh, Mike Zagarek is the lead, I believe, on, on those conversations. And uh, Mike has been certainly, uh, and I've been asking Mike to give me updates, uh, I've seen, I haven't seen anything that raised any red flags uh, to this date. So that's, that's the good news. Are you hearing anything from your constituents on this? Because invariably a, a project like this usually gets mixed reviews. Yeah, I think uh, uh, when you talk to even the, the, the worst uh, skeptic, when they understand and appreciate this is actually more of a, a private sector bid, uh, and the city's going for the ride, and we're going to try and take advantage and uh, piggyback on this particular bid uh, to uh, fast track or uh, make investments on, again, strategic projects that we've already identified. Are you surprised by that, the, the, the amount of private sector investment that's involved in this project? I mean, we've, we've had it with past bids. I mean, McMaster and, and some of our other partners have been there. Uh, but it just seems as if everybody seems to be jumping on board. There's a lot of money involved in this, and it's, a lot of it is private money. Well, there's, you know, it, it, it's uh, how it shakes out with, uh, to benefit those particular private uh, uh, entities. But I can tell you uh, that there's no greater opportunity to leverage two levels, three levels of government, actually, uh, uh, dollars, than uh, things like the Commonwealth Games. So if you can, uh, the private sector get involved and, and get some, uh, reap some benefit from uh, these funds, and again, leaving legacy projects in the city of Hamilton and legacy career opportunities and so forth, I think that's wonderful. I think there's a, it's a marriage made in heaven. Terry, you've been on both sides of this, uh, both as a, as a municipal representative and, of course, as you mentioned, at the provincial level, working with the, in that capacity. Uh, how difficult is it to leverage that money? I mean, the feds have pretty much said whoever gets the Canadian bid, if it's Hamilton, you, there's invariably there's going to be money. The province is a different situation. They haven't made a, a commitment to date anyway. Uh, do you have that discussion, first of all, before you, you, you sign this letter, or do you just assume that they're going to be on board? Well, I, I can guarantee that the city won't be signing anything unless uh, we understand who the partners are at, at the table at the right time. Right time. So there's always going to be, I believe, a, what they, I call an off-ramp, and, uh, and that, and that off-ramp would ultimately be ensuring that all the funding partners are in play. 
The other thing I, I was quite impressed with as I listened to Greg Maycheck talking to us about this yesterday uh, is the, is the uh, the breadth and depth of, of this bid. This is not just going to be a bid where, okay, all this stuff's going to go downtown and, yeah, do a little bit out at Mac. It looks as if the greater community is going to benefit from this, from from Waterdown all the way over to Glenbrook, from the, uh, the the Bayfront all the way south uh, through to the, to the city limits there. It looks as if, and again, I don't want to you know paint this as too rosy a picture because there's going to be a lot of hard work ahead, but there could be something for just about every area of this city now. Yeah, I think it's refreshing because, as you know, Bill, most of the stuff is uh, uh, lower city uh, centric and for good reason. Um, but here's an opportunity now to take a particular international games and, and international profile and, and try and ensure that every geographic area of the city of Hamilton uh, is participating. And I think it's just a wonderful concept. Uh, yeah, we talked about different rec centers and things of this nature that I guess ordinarily you wouldn't think would be part of the games, but uh, there are different uh, sporting events, different uh, things that are going to be happening in different parts of the city if, in fact, we're successful in this. Uh, what's what's the mood on staff in this? I mean, you know, we've been down this road before, as I mentioned. Uh, we came second the first time we did this. I mean, we, it was just remarkable how far down the road we went. Uh, the other one we didn't, I don't think even got outside the Canadian bid. So is, is there an, a, a feeling here, a positive feeling that maybe this is our time? Well, I think for among some, uh, I think there are skeptics. Uh, from a staff perspective, they obviously uh, uh, take the, uh, not only the direction, but sort of they, they, read, they read council. And uh, in the past, uh, after the, the last bid, I think um, uh, for the most part, council got more and more uh, skeptical, skeptical about going after any game. And, uh, and then certainly after the, uh, the Aberwin, uh, stadium issue in the Pan Am, uh, that created even more of a, uh, a skepticism, uh, in the context of hosting games in the city of Hamilton, because that was, the Pan Am was more Toronto centric, as you know. Yeah. So this Commonwealth Games is going to be, uh, um, um, primarily, uh, Hamilton specific and, uh, would certainly, uh, uh, be a different uh, approach to, uh, you know, all the benefits you would reap from having that kind of attention. So I, I I want to make it clear to the audience that uh, uh, this is you know there's a lot of skepticism in council. I want to make that clear. And there's a lot of support. So uh, uh, it'll be continue tested until we get to uh, signing on the dotted line. Interestingly enough, and this is something as uh, we talked to a, a number of people on the committee, Lou Forporti and uh, and of course PJ McCanny and Greg Maycheck over the last couple of days about this. Uh, you keep talking about legacy, and uh, and in their discussions with those agencies. Uh, with the Commonwealth agencies, uh, they seem to say that the agency itself is talking about legacy. You know, don't just tell us you're going to build a stadium, and don't tell us that hey, you know, you're going to get this for us, and we're going to get a pool. What's going to happen after the games? They they seem very very intent on making sure that there is going to be a legacy, and there is going to be some follow up because it hasn't always happened in the past, and and a lot of cities have suffered as a result of that. Yeah, I think uh, I my sense is this is much more of a utilitarian type of approach. Uh, to games and and is and is really focused on people and uh, and and focus on how we could advance uh, poverty and, and and issues in city of Hamilton and and homelessness and career like they're, they're really looking at a more of a social aspect to uh, these games as well uh, and and that's what I find really intriguing. This is there's going to be a regional aspect to this too, as I understand it. I mean, we keep talking about the benefits to Hamilton, but uh, as the Pan Am Games, uh, you know, had spillover events, and we were part of that, obviously, with the stadium here and, and the soccer matches that we're here. Uh, there's a possibility here for for neighboring communities to benefit from this as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, 
you know, a rising tide raises all ships. So there's no question you host the Commonwealth Games, an international event of that size and significance. Uh, the local communities around the city of Hamilton will definitely benefit from it. So you feel as if this is a, an important next step here, that as they come back with the update and start to not necessarily make a, a, a commitment uh, as a council uh, from a financial standpoint, but at least to, to indicate that, yeah, we're here, uh, let's crunch some numbers and just see who's going to pay for what here. Absolutely. I, I, I think that uh, I know for a fact that uh, this is a really respectful group that we're working with. Uh, a lot of good, uh, strong um, uh, background and experience uh, in the Commonwealth uh, Games and and business and uh, and uh, and they have a real love for the city and that, you know that I think that's the foundation uh, that they build upon and they see an opportunity for this this community and quite frankly for the private sector. So uh, uh, they're working uh, diligently and I'm very intrigued with the group and uh, I hope all the success. I'm, I'm you know I know it's good nice should be uh, on behalf of taxpayers, but I think at the end of the day. Uh, we'll do our job, and I know they're going to do theirs. I, I get the sense, though, that you're not going into this with rose-colored glasses. You're, you're still eyes wide open. You want to see some numbers. You uh, want to see what the net benefit is yeah. going to be. I, I can tell you that I'm more of the uh, glass-half-full kind of approach on the Commonwealth Games because I've seen what it's done for the communities. Um, uh, but not everyone's had that experience on council, and uh, and there'll be much more uh, uh, skepticism. So uh, there'll be a fair balance around that uh, horseshoe, and, uh, and that will uh, lead to a very good... Uh, and productive conversation and hopefully uh, a, a very positive decision, which I, th- I, I I'm very optimistic about in regard to moving forward. Uh, Councillor Terry Whitehead, uh, Carrie, uh, Terry, thanks so much for this. Uh, the meeting is getting away in just a couple of minutes, yeah. so I'll let you go, and uh, we'll see just how your council colleagues handle this as well. Take care. Thank you. Bye. That's it. Ward 15, Councillor Terry Whitehead. Here's the deal, and, and I, I again, I don't want to jump out because we've had a number of people on here, P.J. Mercanti and, and Lou Fraport, uh, and, and others that, that are so enthusiastic, and I've talked to other committee members uh, that have been involved in this, uh, Cecilia Carter-Smith and so many other great Hamiltonians that uh, jump at the chance to be able to, to promote this city and do what's best for this city. And, and I don't disagree at all that, that to, to actually win the games and actually have the 100th anniversary Commonwealth Games here in Hamilton would be an incredible accomplishment. And I do understand, based on what we've seen from uh, other cities that have hosted the games, there's a real opportunity here. But there's always politics involved in this, always. And uh, I, that's, I think, what scuttled Hamilton's bid a number of years ago when we went this and, and got the, Hamilton, or the Canadian end of this and went all the way down, and it was between us and, and one other city in India, and uh, they got it. And we were told after the fact, uh, not officially, of course, that politics had a lot to do with it. So that's still going to be at play. And the other element to this, too, that uh, is still kind of lurking out there is that uh, Calgary's kind of jumping in and trying to make a last-minute bid for the games before that. Well, if Calgary were to be awarded those games, there's no way they're going to come back to Canada for the next one. So uh, that's that's out there. I'm not so sure if it's as much a factor as some people want it to be or think it might be, but it's there. And until that is eradicated and we're simply moving through, uh, we need a clear path here before that happens. But what City Council does today is going to be very important in, in bolstering the, the confidence, I guess, in the Hamilton bid uh, obviously, we've got sentimentality on our side, being the 100th anniversary, and this is where the first one was. But uh, that's, I don't think, from what I've talked to the committee members about, uh, what they're hanging their hat on. They want to have a strong business case for this, and we'll see how they go with their presentation today. We'll certainly follow and track that here in CHML and uh, bring you up to speed on what's going on through the course of the day at City Hall. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the other controversial issues among many that uh, council is going to be dealing with, uh, I guess they're going to be dealing with it anyway, it's scheduled to later on today, is uh, an agreement with the Cardis organization uh, to at least Balfour House, the historic Balfour House over the next 20 years. The uh, site and building are currently owned by the Ontario Heritage Trust, uh, but looked after and administered by the city. Uh, not the first time the Cardis has come before City Council. Uh, a couple of years ago, of course, they were involved in uh, looking into Ockmar's situation. Uh, there will be a staff report on this today, uh, but uh, our next guest is very concerned that uh, as staff did their assessment on this proposal from Cardis, that uh, they didn't include all the uh, factors that probably should have been included in the uh, possibility of going into a partnership uh, with this organization and the city. Uh, there was an interesting op-ed piece that was uh, published in The Spectator the other day, co-authored by uh, Graham Crawford and uh, Cameron Croche, uh, about their concerns, uh, and which I think echo a number of other people's uh, concerns here in this community about this proposed partnership. Cameron Croche joins us on The Bill Kelly Show to uh, talk about exactly what might happen and, uh, and the ramifications of Cameron, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Yeah, thanks a lot, Bill. Thought-provoking piece uh, that you and Graham put together on this that uh, I think outlines in, in pretty simple terms exactly what you're concerned about. Yeah, we're really concerned that the city's going down a road here without having done their homework. Uh, they wrote a staff report, and that staff report doesn't talk at all about some of the controversies surrounding Cardis and doesn't talk at all about their plans for making sure that the decisions they make are about equity, diversity, and inclusion for all Hamiltonians. Which is actually what uh, the city says. Uh, that's what they boast about. That's what they brag about. That's what they say is, is part of their mantra. You don't get the feeling, I guess, from, from what you've written in the op-ed piece, though, Cameron, that they followed through on, on, on following those ideals. Yeah, it's a bit of a head-scratcher, Bill. I mean, about a year ago, maybe less, they started talking about how they're going to have a EDI lens, an equity, diversity, and inclusion lens, to make sure that all city decisions are made with that in mind. Last October, the city manager came forward and made it one of the top strategic priorities for the city. When you read the report, it goes over the financial implications and legal risks, but it's completely silent on this topic. No mention at all? None. Uh, And I think it's shocking that they didn't do that. Uh, Considering how many concerns have been brought up when this was before council, as you said, in 2015, uh, when Cardis came back a few months ago, uh, lots of folks wrote in, the public outcry was there, saying, hey, you need to look, take a close look at this organization and where it stands on issues of homosexuality, um, anti-LGBTQ rights, uh, poverty, uh, those kinds of things. And it seems like the council is just not going to do that. You've included in your op-ed piece here a, a couple of uh, excerpts from, from some of their literature. Uh, and I know that when you did this in the past, not you specifically, but I mean the, the community did this in the past, uh, the, the defense from Cardis usually was all these things are all taken out of context, uh, which I, on a personal level, tend to think is kind of a frivolous response to that. I mean, the, the words are the words, uh, and, and they stand on their own, I think. And, and a couple of them here jump out uh, for people that didn't see this. Uh, said, poverty is not simply a financial issue. It's the way we understand those who are incapable of making social investments or those who may not belong to anything larger than themselves. Uh <laughs> That does not sound like an inclusive... Uh, com- and, and this, by the way, we should mention, uh, is from a, 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 a publication that Cardis is responsible for, right? Yeah, it's essentially their talking piece, their publication called Convivium that they put out. Um, and these articles and these quotes come right from that publication, which on their website says that they produce it. And it isn't inclusive. We're in the middle of an affordable housing crisis. Um, poverty is one of the major issues facing people in Canada, especially in Hamilton. 
and we talk about this all the time, for them to have material like this out there that they're not, they're not addressing, they're leaving out there for the public to read, sends a very strong message that they're not concerned about being inclusive. And what they're concerned about, though, is wanting a partnership, right? And that's what this seems to be about, is wanting to forge a partnership with the city of Hamilton and elevate their status, move to uh, a heritage property that's much sought after to set up a base of operations in Hamilton. And as a city that's been ranked recently as one of the top cities um, with hate-based violence, it should really be a time for city council to be reflecting on every single decision it makes with equity, diversity, and inclusion in mind. Um, this seems to me to be an opportunistic thing Cardis is trying to do. And for the city to not even have it mentioned in its staff report, to me, is a glaring oversight. There's another. There's a number of quotes here. People can go to the webpage and, and see a, a number of them if they're so inclined. But one of the other ones that you included in this uh, it says homosexuals are working towards a radical redefinition of public mores regarding sexuality, marriage, and the family. Now, in light of what's happened in the last 12 months in this city, Cameron, uh, and you're well aware of that, of course, you're, you were very much involved in this, as a number of other people in the LGBTQ community were uh, at Gage Park and, and some of the subsequent actions at City Hall over the last couple of months. You would think that there would be an awareness, if not by city staff, at least by city councillors, to say, look, it, let's, uh, let's look into this a little further. Yes, you would think there would be, Bill, um, because especially of all the things that have happened, as you say, in the last 12 months in the city of Hamilton, none of these things which are new to the city of Hamilton have been going on for years here. That's a question that we should all be asking ourselves, is why, given these things that have gone on, given these kinds of words that are out there on Cardis's website, would the city of Hamilton want to partner with Cardis? And that's the question I think every Hamiltonian has to ask themselves. The city doesn't appear ready to make these kinds of decisions and choices. In fact, when I contacted staff, that's kind of the response I got, which was, we're not ready to be applying uh, an EDI lens to these kinds of decisions. And if they're not ready, they shouldn't be making these decisions. They should be putting them off. They could also, of course, refer to the 13 advisory committees that the city has and ask for their advice, many of whom are equity-seeking groups, and I'm sure would be happy to weigh in on the subject. But why would they not apply that lens? Why even have the lens, then, if they're not going to use that as a tool? That's a great question, Bill. And I think it's because... I'm, it's, I'm asking it rhetorically to you because yeah. you're not responsible for it, but it just it's quizzical that they would say, yeah, we're not ready to apply that lens. Well, when will you be ready? Well, I'm not sure when that's going to be, but it's already taken several months. And like I said, there's many other ways for them to get this information. There's many other ways for them to get this perspective. They can reach out to their residents to ask these questions. They can look at the public outcry. They could even just ask Cardis these questions in council chambers themselves. And we'll, we'll see today if that happens. But I think it's important for councillors to take this opportunity, having seen the kinds of comments that are out there, to directly ask Cardis what they're doing to make sure that they're inclusive, what they're doing to address these issues, and if they plan to change course. Uh, there are a couple of other things about this, and, and I, I, I don't want to divorce ourselves from this discussion about what these people are and what they seem to stand for. Uh, but from a technical standpoint, which is actually what the city staff report, from what you're telling me, seems to be focusing on, and nothing else, it's, it's sort of like they're sitting down there looking at numbers and not looking up to see who they're actually dealing with. But with, with that in mind, uh, you mentioned, and just what I've seen from the staff report here too, uh, this is a, a, a very important property, Balfour House, and uh, of course, as we mentioned off the top, it's uh, owned by the, the Heritage Trust, but uh, managed by the city, administered by the city. Why did they sole source this? I mean, why did they not put out a request for proposals and give everybody who might be interested a chance at this? 
Well, that was the question asked of some councillors and others at a meeting a few months ago, asking why this wasn't put out for a request for proposal. But as I'm sure you've seen and we've noticed happens a lot, the city is um, open to taking unsolicited proposals and open to sole source agreements. But Cameron, that's totally contrary to city policy. It's completely contrary to city policy, which is one of the reasons why I think this requires some deep analysis. And to your point about the technicalities here, the Ontario Heritage Trust issued a report, which was an appendix to the staff's report, and it wasn't exactly glowing, Bill. Um, There are a lot of major issues here um, with respect to heritage and restoring this building. And I don't think the Heritage Trust has a lot of confidence at this point, based on the report I read, that Cardis or anybody else is in a position uh, to undertake those things right now and to make those kinds of changes over time. And I don't know if just on the technicalities alone, this project might not go forward, which is an important reason why you need to put a request for proposal out and get multiple bids and have a robust discussion about this about the matter. Well, and yeah, in, in the open would be kind of nice too, because uh, from what I understand, they haven't been very uh, forthcoming with some of the numbers. I, I know the Heritage did an assessment on this. The Heritage Fund did an assessment on this. Uh, and, and just to give a, a general uh, response, I guess, Cameron, they say there's a lot of work that needs to be done. It's structural work and other things that need to be done to this property. Uh, is there any guarantee that they're going to undertake those uh, those projects? Is there any, any indication who's going to pay for these? Uh, you know, right now we've got people say, "Yeah, don't worry about that," but that's that's not really cold. It's cold comfort, really. Why aren't we having a discussion in the open about this instead of simply what seems to be a, a negotiation, not even a negotiation, but a, a, a sole source proposal from one agency when, in fact, there might be five or six or ten or twenty other agencies that might be able to come forward, might be able to offer a better deal to the city. Yeah, we're being asked to kind of hold off, uh, suspend our disbelief until a time later on when they're deep into negotiations with Cardis already. And my response to that is, why are you going down the road with this one organization? And why is it that you're doing these sole sources over and over again? If there's nothing to hide, let's have a conversation in public. And as you pointed out, the financial part of this is not in the light of day. That is an appendix that's going to be discussed in camera. And I think the public deserves to know what's going on. As you know, with Ockmeyer in 2015, a lot of that was done behind the scenes and got a lot of public outrage. And the city doesn't seem to be learning. Well, and not just with the Cardis application at Ockmeyer. I mean, ever since uh, the city took possession of that, uh, they've basically been trying to find somebody to partner with. And uh, uh, it's, it's, it's been a problem for them. And, and obviously, you know, it's, it's sitting where it is right now. And we're still wondering what's going to happen with that property. I, I'd hate to see the same thing happen with Balfour House here. Uh, you know, you got one chance to get it right here, and, and it, with, your point's well taken. Have they not learned from the past here? I mean, they seem to be breaching some of their own policies here uh, and, and simply saying, well, you know, so what? That's the way things are. You can't have that. I, I, I'm, I'm surprised that some more councillors aren't outraged by this. Just on process, how many times, Cameron, and you go to an awful lot of council meetings or, or stream them, as most of us do, uh, to you know, when there are key issues like this, time and time again, you will hear some councillors arguing about process. Why didn't you follow process? We have policies here. Uh, well, that's that's what's going on right here. Soul sourcing when when they're not supposed to soul source, and of course, you know this this all of a sudden confidential negotiation that seems to be going on, and they're not even applying their own lens about equity and, and diversity to a project like this. I mean. <laughs> I, I, if I'm on council, thank God I'm not, but I mean, if I were, I'd be asking these questions today. Yeah, we're stewards. Council is stewards for these heritage properties. 
they may be owned by the Ontario Heritage Trust, but we're entrusted to make sure that um, they're upkept and those kinds of things. And like you said, this seems to be a pattern of us kind of want to pawning these off on private groups. These are intended and were left and bequeathed to be public buildings, to have public access, not so that they can be, um, become the gemstone for um, a, a, you know, a faith-based think tank's operations privately. That's not where we're supposed to be going here. And when you listen to the conversations when Cardis came a few months ago to council, you heard councillors saying incredible things like, well, I went by Cardis for a cup of coffee and they seem like nice people. This seems to be the kind of uh, way that influence and decision-making is happening at council rather than them going through a rigorous process, looking at this from as many perspectives as, po- perspectives as possible um, and coming out there with a good public transparent decision. Well, yeah, and therein lies the problem. Uh, in, in other words, if, is, is this a move by city staff, and hopefully not by council, but by city staff, to simply dump this property off and try to find a, a way to get somebody to take it off their hands for the next 20 years and, and perhaps do the renovations? How many times, and I sat on, well, it was called LACAC at the time, but it's the Heritage Committee now, uh, where we looked after the, the, the well-being of a number of fabulous historic properties across the city over a number of years, and and there, more than once we had to deal with people that owned these properties or had taken over, uh, you know, the 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 care of those properties and simply let them del- become dilapidated properties uh, because they don't do the work. And then what happens? You know, well, they walk away and the city's stuck with a bill. I'm not suggesting that's going to happen with Cardis, but I'm not suggesting that there's any information that that they haven't guaranteed that that's not going to happen either. When we don't have any information, well, that's where speculation starts to become rampant. Yeah, it's the city of Hamilton's job to ensure that these properties are protected and maintained for public use. And if and if the last year has been any example, we can see that sometimes those checks and balances don't work out, even when things are um, in our steward. That happened with Coots, the Coots cover-up at Sewergate. I think that it's important that the city starts focusing really hard on its priorities here in terms of maintaining public assets, whether those be heritage buildings our waterways, instead of trying to suggest, hey, maybe this other group can do this work for us, uh, maybe we'll let this group run this building for us that's public and hope they do a good job. A lot of, seems like a lot of writing on the back of napkins and handshakes are happening here instead of rigorous analysis. My first inclination, if, you know, if this were presented you know, to, to somebody on city staff, is if somebody came out like, like Cardis here and expressed a, a deep interest in this, uh, my my first reaction would be, well, you know, maybe you should run this up the flagpole and see if there's anybody else out there instead of simply taking a sole source application, see what else is available. And and I'm not suggesting at the detriment of Cardis, they may be the only ones who come forward. And if, if you do put a request for proposals out and you only get one applicant, well, that tells you something. But to not go through that first part of the process and simply say, yeah, we're just going to deal with you guys, just doesn't make any sense. And, and if, if the mantra of city council is to get the best possible deal for the residents of this city, financially, culturally, and otherwise, they haven't done that because they don't know that this is the best deal that's out there. That came up at the last meeting of council, Bill, and another group, I believe Cobalt Connects, had wanted also to put an application in for this space. I could be getting the name wrong there. But there was at least one other party that wanted to come in and put an application in for this space. And council sat there, discussed it, and said, well, you know, we don't think this other group's going to have the kinds of resources that Cardis has, so they're not even in the same league. We're just going to go ahead here and ask staff to go down the sole source road. 
And yeah, that was very irresponsible. There are many organizations who would probably like to have a property like that um, to maintain and take care of in a responsible way. Many who have a long history of experience restoring heritage properties. And um, this is not the case here at all. They've, as you said, gone down the sole source road and are not interested in looking at this from a broad perspective and talking to many possible bidders. Uh, what do you expect is going to happen at the meeting today? I don't know. There are some other reports that came about at the last minute um, that are being discussed today as well that may have an impact on this. I have uh, the sense that staff are going to address these issues as best they can without an EDI framework. Um, but in my experience, having watched these things happen a few times now, I have uh, the unfortunate expectation that they're just going to go right ahead, um, status quo as planned, and allow the uh, staff to get into an agreement with Cardiff. Where does the city draw the line here, Cameron? And, and again, it's, it's a rhetorical question, but I think it's something that we need to discuss here. Uh, for them to simply say, look, I know there's some concerns by a number of different uh, groups in this community uh, about the reputation of this organization, but city staff seem to have simply been dismissive of that. Where do you draw that line? D- d- can anybody apply as long as they get the numbers to, to do this and to make it attractive to the city uh, with, without any consideration for what they might stand for? I think that the words stand for are important there, Bill. This is about priorities. The city of Hamilton's strategic priorities, the priorities of residents of the city of Hamilton, and what we expect from our municipal leaders. It's important, as always, to strike a balance between financial and legal risks. Everyone gets that. Anyone who's ever run a business or been involved in a business knows that those, that balance is important. But when your priorities completely undermine focusing on folks who are vulnerable or marginalized, and when you're not looking at things from an equitable perspective, you're not considering diversity and inclusion, you're failing the residents of the city of Hamilton. Well, this is a day where city council is going to have to do their job, and, and that means vigilance, and that means uh, looking at this in a broad perspective, and we'll see how they respond to this later on today. Uh, Cameron, thanks again for the, for the op-ed piece, and uh, thanks for the time today. We'll see uh, balls in their court right now. We'll see how they respond. Yes, thanks, Bill. Cameron Croach, of course, uh, uh, and check out that op-ed piece. I think it's still available. Actually, it's been reprinted by a number of other papers around the area uh, in Peterborough, St. Catharines, and others as well, because this is not just a Hamilton-only issue. But uh, what's happening with Balfour House is, and that means city council is going to have to respond accordingly. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, if uh, anybody thought that the return of the Ontario legislature this week was going to uh, accelerate uh, the discussions and negotiations between the government and uh, the various teachers' associations and unions, uh, well, think again. Uh, we're no further ahead. As a matter of fact, there's some indications that we may have taken a couple of steps back in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and it's uh, going to culminate, obviously, in a massive one-day strike, uh, one-day walkout uh, that's going to be happening on Friday right across the province. Uh, joining us to talk about uh, what's not gone on and uh, what might be happening in the future is Harvey Bischoff, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Uh, busy time for you, Harvey. Thanks for taking some time for us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Bill. I appreciate it. Any progress at all? Any glimmer of light? I mean, since we talked a couple of weeks ago, that to, to suggest that maybe the government wants to get serious about negotiating? Well, not from our perspective. I mean, I'm I'm glad to hear that a couple of the other uh, education unions are returning to the table, um, but we haven't had so much as an invitation, um, any outreach to suggest that there's. Uh, movement uh, from the government that would make going back to the table worthwhile. And I really, I really have to wonder what kind of games this minister is playing where 
Um, he's clearly indicated they're willing to make some moves to get the other unions back to the table, um, but somehow the students that OSSTF members uh, serve don't seem to be deserving of the same uh, effort. Well, and I guess you could actually question the motivation and, and maybe even the efficacy of some of the things that they've proposed. I know for the elementary school teachers, and I know that's not your area, but uh, with Earl Manners, uh, basically they're saying they'll supply more money for some of the other needs within the classroom, but the teachers pretty much have to give up their ideas about uh, funding the pension program, which has already been funded for a number of years right now. And there is a provincial responsibility that they seem to be wanting to walk away from here. So uh, it's it's uh, it's not really a give and take here. It just seems as if, uh, you know, you guys are going to have to sacrifice something if you want something for the kids. I mean, they're really pitting one against the other here. Yeah, and, and to be clear, not the not the pension, but the benefits plan. Yeah, um, which the uh, which the uh, you know all of the unions took over the operation and the risk associated with running uh, uh, a benefits plan on behalf of our members from the employers in the last round of bargaining. And now you've got a government saying it's either special education or you get to keep your plan intact. We're not talking about improvements to the plan. We're talking about not having it eroded over the years. So here you have a government leveraging special education funding against against a benefit plan in a way that it, it's absolutely unconscionable uh, and true that didn't happen you know that's not at my table but that's because we haven't been at a bargaining table since december the 16th but it's indica- uh, indicative i think though harvey of, of the, the the mindset that they're using in these negotiations it really basically this this I, I get the undercurrent here. I mean, I've I've covered a number of these negotiations over the years, going back uh, quite a few governments, and and the indication that they're doing here by putting that that counter offer, so to speak, against the elementary teachers, uh, is basically saying it's you or the students. You know, if you say no to this, then you really don't care about the students. I mean, that's the that seems to be the mantra here. And 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 it is a repetition of an approach that they've already taken, going all the way back to when they first made their announcements on March the fifteenth of their intention to cut a quarter of Ontario's high school teachers and thousands of education workers. They said at that time they're not going to redo the funding for ed- uh, renew the funding for education workers, but we'd be able to bargain it back. And what that meant is that students began the school year without access to those to those education workers who support kids with special needs needs who support kids who are at risk for a variety of reasons and it was the government that chose to leverage that cut as well against the bargaining table so they are explicitly and demonstrably willing to leverage students educational experience the supports that kids need uh, against the bargaining table and again um, it's it is unconscionable for a government to take that approach and to say that it's it's then up to us to try to bargain back supports for students He's talking to a commentator about this on Monday, uh, who suggested that uh, it looks to him as if the government's, well, the phrase he used was playing the long game here. In other words, they're just ragging the puck, figuring that eventually uh, parents and, and, the, and the public in general is going to start turning against the teachers. Do you get that sense? Um, you know, I, I, it, it's, it's certainly hard to unpack what this government strategy is if they ever had one from the outset. And I mean, this is a government that has botched Every file they've handled, whether it's health care, whether it's autism, um, you know, which resulted in another, another demonstration on Queen's Park Lawn uh, yesterday, whether it's license plates, for heaven's sake, these guys cannot touch anything without breaking it. So whether they had a strategy from the outset, it's unclear. But if they're playing the long game, um, what's been demonstrated since we began taking action on December the 4th is the public's not on board with their approach. They support the things that we have on the bargaining table. They oppose the government's approach, uh, their cuts to education, this 
destructive agenda they're pursuing. Um, so the long game, to me, leads to you know the the next election uh, for them, where they're thrown out of office if that's the, the path they want to pursue. I'm still trying to find uh, somebody, anybody, and I've gone online, I've talked to a number of poli-sci professors, a number of uh, folks uh, that have expertise in the education system. Uh, and Harvey, to this point, I have not found anybody that says, you know, this e-learning, that's the future, that's what we're going to be doing. As a matter of fact, just about all of them, consensus seems to be this is a very ill-conceived program. It, it, it absolutely. There's no evidence to support that this is a good idea. Um, there's a few jurisdictions in the states that have a single mandatory e-learning credit. Um, they, uh, you know, one I've mentioned before, it's Alabama. It ranks uh, 49th out of 50 in American education quality. Michigan um, has extensive study of their mandatory e-learning uh, program, which demonstrates that it it it. Um, disadvantages uh, kids in a variety of ways. The kid, kids are not as successful in uh, a mandatory learning program as they are in face-to-face classrooms. There's a, there's a place for e-learning um, in certain circumstances and with certain kids, and, and we absolutely don't deny that. But the idea of taking the, you know, the 5% of kids who voluntarily take e-learning right now, ramping that up to 100% of kids taking a mandatory two credits, um, is a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for kids failing to accumulate credits. Um, and, and when that happens, when they start to fall behind, they become at significantly greater risk for dropping out of the system. And Ontario doesn't need more dropouts. We need more kids who are prepared to move into post-secondary, more kids who are prepared to take on skilled trades apprenticeships. What we don't need is to be, is to be drumming them out of school by you know, providing them inadequate supports. How far down the road do you anticipate they're going to go with this? I mean, this, uh, as you said, right off the bat, there have been teaching positions that have been eliminated. Uh, now they're talking about uh, this possibility here of e-learning, which is really another process of, of eliminating teaching positions. In other words, if you're taking an online course, you don't need somebody in the classroom. Uh, are we going down this road to the extent where we get start? We don't need bricks and mortar schools anymore. We just stay at home on your laptop, kids, and and you can get all your credits that way. I mean, it's just it seems bizarre here that they seem to be going down this road without any really rationalization as to why this is a better system. And, and I think I think the reason that there's no rationalization is because I mean there is no good uh, pedagogical reason for pursuing this, and the real reasons I think are ones they want to keep hidden. I mean, I strongly suspect that this is nothing more than the thin edge of the wedge of an attempt to privatize uh, the publicly funded education system. They've already talked in a leaked um, report uh, within the Ministry of Education about uh, selling off parts of this system to generate revenue. Well, that's not what publicly funded education is for. It's to it's to educate kids, to provide them with uh, opportunities in the future to improve Ontario's civil society, and they're talking about using it as a revenue generator. Um, heaven knows uh, to whom they've promised, uh, you know, which cronies they've promised this program that they that those people could make money off of. Um, but I think that's underlying all of this. I, you know, my real fear is that's the direction they're pursuing, and that's one of the reasons that we have to be so... Um, firm in pushing back against this. Well, and for those that think, oh, come on, you guys, you're just postulating here. Uh, there's, there's already evidence that's happened. I mean, late Friday afternoon, and a lot of people were not aware of this, of course, they, they made an announcement just before a long holiday weekend 
that they were selling off and privatizing a good segment of the social service delivery agency here in this province. Uh, much to the chagrin of an awful lot of people that have been working very hard to try to uh, elevate people out of poverty and to try to get them jobs. Uh, now apparently some firm in the States is going to be running this. And uh, it just shows that, you know, anything they can do to reduce their bottom line, that's good for them. Is it better for the system? Is it better for the people that rely on the system? Who cares? That seems to be the attitude. And you know this this approach that they're that they're piloting now with the social services and a sell off to a to a, a private company to to administer that. It's been tried in the UK. It's been tried in Australia. They've had to pull back significantly on those programs because they were disastrous for the individuals they were meant to serve. And yet they go down this ideological path anyway that that absolutely damages uh, Ontarians in need. Um, uh, how they can pursue this and, and go down the same ideological road in education when these were absolutely not things that they promised during during the election campaign is is beyond me. I don't believe it's an approach that Ontarians support. Where do you go from here? I mean, you talked uh, with us, I, I guess, when this whole uh, process started, uh, you know, the, the work to rule and a number of other initiatives and uh, we were wondering then just, you know, what the next steps were going to be. Uh, we know, of course, what's going to be happening on Friday, and I'll get to that in just a couple of seconds. Uh, but but how do you bring them back to the table? I mean, as you mentioned, they seem to be dividing and conquering here. They're, they're talking to the Catholic school teachers, who, by the way, are still very frustrated by their negotiations, and they're now uh, considering a series of one-day strikes. So I, I don't know that they're very confident that they're going to find any sort of common ground here. Uh, which is really just putting you all on the same side once again, where the government's simply saying, this is our rhetoric, this is our bottom line, uh, and they're not talking anymore. Yeah, I mean, they've tried divide and conquer, and I think it's it's been entirely unsuccessful. They've tried to divide uh, the you know rank-and-file union membership from the leadership. That hasn't worked. They've tried to divide parents from educators. That hasn't worked. Um, and I've never been more confident that they aren't going to divide the education affiliates, the education unions from one another. I, I have a great deal of confidence working with my colleagues in, uh, in the other unions um, that we will, we will continue to hang together. Um, we will need to um, clearly maintain at least the pressure on this government, um, continue to have uh, uh, the public speak out against the, the agenda that they're pursuing, um, we've been very measured and very careful about balancing that with the need to, you know, to, to not um, unnecessarily have a negative impact on students' education experience this year. But we also can't let this go unchecked, because if it does, the, the damage they will do to the system and to our students over the next number of years um, will be massive. Um, and we know from, from, you know, what the public has been telling us um, that, that they're uh, absolutely supportive of the positions that we've taken. Friday, let's talk a little bit about Friday. Uh, there'll be a one-day walkout uh, province-wide, every publicly funded school, Catholic uh, uh, public schools, uh, French language, all of them, uh, will be taking the day as, as a day of protest. Uh, and uh, what's, what's planned for that? I mean, there's more to this. I assume there's going to be demonstration at some point. Yeah, so in a lot of places we have locals from the from the various uh, education affiliates working together to uh, to put on uh, mass pickets and so forth. There will, uh, you know, we're expecting to have have uh, such a picket at Queens Park on Friday, which will be enormous when you put together the combined uh, membership of of uh, all of the education affiliates that work within uh, the Toronto borders. Um, that will be happening elsewhere as well. Um, you know, in Peel, they have a plan for the longest picket line potentially uh, in in history, uh, right up uh, here Ontario Street. 
you know, run for kilometers and kilometers. Um, and so there will be a united demonstration um, that we that we oppose this government's approach. But, you know, I think it's really important to bear in mind that while you've got a, a minister of education who points the finger at everybody else and who claims that, you know, there's always been this sort of thing in every round of bargaining, in fact, what's going to happen on Friday will be at a historic event. It has never before happened that all four education affiliates in Ontario are taking uh, legal strike action together. Um, and that tells you the overwhelming resistance to, to this government's agenda. Uh, of course, if there's going to be a, a, a demonstration in Queen's Park, we should mention the public, the government's not going to be there. The uh, uh, progressive conservatives are having their uh, their policy convention down in Niagara Falls. So they're out of town on Friday. Uh, so I, I'm assuming there's going to be demonstration down there, of course, where the government's actually going to be situated. But uh, our sources tell us that there may well be a, 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 a gathering of teachers in front of the, uh, the Ministry of Education building on Front Street in Toronto. Can you confirm that? Um, I can't at the moment. Uh, I just I haven't seen all the detailed plans yet, so I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure um, if that will also be a picket site. I'm afraid, uh, but I can tell you that uh, there will be a lot of people in Niagara Falls, uh, uh, no doubt on Friday, but definitely on Saturday as well. Um, to uh, what shall we say? Greet uh, the government down there. Uh, if we were to send our reporters down to the ministry building, is it likely that we'll see a, a gaggle of uh, teachers with picket signs? Um, like I say, I, I just can't confirm that yet. I'll make sure that uh, I can get information to you. Uh, certainly, uh, at this point, it is uh, my plan to, uh, with my affiliate counterparts, so the, the presidents of the other education unions, uh, to uh, be available in the morning together to demonstrate the unity with which we're resisting this destructive Ford education agenda. And uh, once that is done, of course, meaning the Friday uh, one-day walkout, uh, you're back to the series of rotating one-day walkouts, uh, I guess, until you get the government's attention. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's what it comes down to. I mean, we will constantly reassess uh, our actions uh, depending on the environment we're in. Um, and, and as I said, we've been very mindful of how we can go forward uh, putting pressure on this government while... while uh, you know, having the minimal impact that we can on students' education experience this year. Um, but there's no doubt that we can't allow this agenda to go forward because it will wreak havoc on our students. There are two possibilities here, that w- which neither would end well. Uh, and we've seen this happen with past disputes. Uh, and this is going back to the 1990s to the Harris government. Uh, one was a strike where the teachers simply went on strike. The other was uh, when the government locked the teachers out. Uh, is is this going to come down to a staring contest between the two sides to see who blinks first? You know, I, I don't really like to characterize bargaining that way. Um, you know, I mean, obviously there, you know, uh, it is there is a matter of, of uh, pressure and and uh, and you know raising public attention and all of that sort of thing. Real bargaining happens when the two sides sit down at the table and not see who blinks first, but try to find creative solutions to the issues that have been raised. We're prepared to do that. Um, we have a long uh, history and tradition of, of creative problem solving at bargaining tables. Um, and so rather than seeing it as a, just a, you know, one side or the other blinks, why don't they come and meet us at the bargaining table um, and we can work out proposals that actually support Ontario students? which is the opposite of what they're doing right now for all the minister's claims. Um, but given that opportunity, um, you know, there's a potential for problem solving here that we're happy to engage in. Harvey, we'll check back with you in a day or two to see just uh, what the status is going to be in the schedule for Friday. Appreciate your time today, though. 
Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Harvey Bischoff, of course, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Uh, I'm sure you're aware, if you're a parent with kids in the school system right now, that Friday is a one-day uh, shutdown for every school, uh, public, uh, Catholic, French, everybody else. And uh, I, as we say, our sources tell us that there could be a large gathering. And we know there's going to be one at Queen's Park, but there's nobody going to be at Queen's Park, nobody from the government anyway. Uh, but there is a ministry building. The uh, Ministry of Education building in Toronto is on Front Street in uh, downtown Toronto. And uh, there may well be a large demonstration there, as there will be in Niagara Falls, where the uh, Ford government is meeting for their convention. Anyway, uh, we'll get all the details on that, and uh, when we get it, you'll get it. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.